Thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Michael Keller again, and I've been here all weekend uh, looking at missions. We have missions in faraway places. We have missions here, and hopefully what I want to talk about is how often in church you can just get used to doing the same old, same old, and we get into these routines because it's easy to get used to and be unintentional with our time and our space and our actions. And so what I want to do this morning is, is turn to the book of Acts. And what I love about the book of Acts is here you have Acts chapter 1, there's Jesus. You actually see Jesus, and then he's gone. And the rest of Acts is like, what are we going to do as the church now that Jesus is gone? How, what are we going to do with each other? And how are we going to go on mission together? And so the problem, I think, to, just to try to put it for us this morning is the American church, this church, when we look and compare ourselves and we look around and we, we see how we do things, then we look here in Acts chapter 2 where our passage is this morning and we see how they did church, there seems to be a disconnect. And I'll, I'll try to explain it this way. I don't know if you know this, but the number one reason why uh, people who are not Christians, why they say they're not Christians, if you try to walk around Jackson and ask people that are not Christians, you say, why aren't you a Christian? Most of them will actually say the reason is because of the lives and actions of other Christians. They'll actually say it's because Christians are hypocritical, that the church is not a place of community. It's not a place of connection. It's not a place of care. And, I, and I've tried to make this very personal for myself, but I'll do the same for you. Have you ever done this? Have you ever uh, basically invited somebody over to your house that you knew they would never be able to say yes? Right? Have you ever, or, or here's another version of that. Have you ever like, seen somebody, you've met up with them, like a chance encounter, you see them at, at a store or a movie theater, and you, you know, oh yeah, hey, I haven't seen you in a long time, how's it going, good to see you. Hey, let's, let's hang out, let's talk, I'll, I'll give you a call, I'll text you. And you walk away and you're like, there's no way I'm doing that. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. I think everybody in this room has done that at some point. And so what that means is this is that there's parts of us who like the idea of community, but we really don't want to do community. We like the, what we want is we want the credit for being hospitable, for being communal people, but actually we don't. We don't actually want to do it. Deep, deep, deep down, we actually don't want it. So what happens is, is I think people outside the church see that sentiment in us as the church that we say we're welcoming. We say we want other people in here, but they know that we don't ultimately. And so what we're going to do with that is that, is that I think we... Here's the, here's the delicate balance. is we, we do want community, but only in our way. Only if it's not with messy people, which is kind of a problem because people are messy. Only if it fits our agenda, if it fits, you know, if, if it's not going to be too time-consuming. Like, I want to hang out with those people over there, those people over there, no way. Forget it. But these people, yeah, those people, no. So we're selective with what we want. So we want it, but we don't want it. We, we do what we, but we don't. And by the way, this is not just a problem with the church, right? And outside the church, we have the same problem. We have thin relationships. The way I, I talk about it with um, my church is I say, we are lonely connected together. I think that's an interesting way to put it. We're lonely connected together. You and I live at a time when you can pick up your phone and you can connect with anybody in the world right now. I mean, that's pretty impressive. But that's the other thing about these phones. The technology, we use it to actually not connect with people. Because you know why? They talk to us, we're like, I'm not talking to you. Right? We, we, that's why we ghost. That's why we, we, uh, we don't respond. So technology 
has allowed us to actually be more disconnected. And so what I want to look at today, the text we have is going to challenge us. Because I think what Peter is saying to the people here, and particularly starting in verse 40, he's pleading with them, and he's warning them, and he's trying to show them that the way that they're doing life actually isn't going to keep working for them. It's not going to keep working on this level. So here's our attention today, is that we want both extreme individuality. We want to be able to do what we want, wherever we want, wherever we want, and yet we actually still want connection and community with other people, who, by the way, want to do what they want, where they want, when they want, in their way, which, by the way, I don't even know that, that's kind of hard to do. So, how can we, on one level, say that we want our autonomy and yet want community? And I think their text helps us understand that. It helps us to then know, because we can't go do mission unless we figure this out first. So let me read it to you. It's Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 47. Acts chapter 2, chapter, uh, uh, chapter 2 verses 37 through 47. Now, when they heard that they were, they, when they heard this, and what did they hear? Right before that verse 36, that Jesus, whom you crucified, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And, people, and, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for illumination this morning. Everybody in this room is coming here with concerns and cares and circumstances, and it's going to be hard for us to concentrate because those things uh, are foremost in our mind. I pray we'll put them to the side just for a few minutes to focus on this word right here, what you want to say to us this morning. I pray that we'll be able to take that and hear it and really use it, Father, to change ourselves, to move us closer to you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. I think this text gives us our solution to the problem of both wanting individuality and autonomy and yet actually community and connection. Those things are intention, and we can't go out and serve and love and do mission, whether it's out there or in here, either in Jackson or the world, unless we figure this out. And I think the text gives us... Uh, three things. One, there's a plan here. We need to read and figure out what that plan is. Two, the parts of the plan. We need to break it down. And then lastly, the power behind the plan. So we're going to look at the plan, the parts of the plan, and then the power behind the plan. And so first, the plan. And the plan is laid out in the text. It's, this is the most comprehensive text that I know that details what life for the individual and for the church should be like. 
And the text is, by the way, this is a historical text telling us exactly what happened at the very first sermon. Pentecost happens, the Holy Spirit comes down, and this is the first church service. This is the first time Peter's preaching, and what we see here is that it's not good enough just to intellectually understand this stuff. If we intellectually understand this and walk out of here and there's no experiential change, you actually didn't understand it in the first place. And that's what he's saying to these people then. That you don't keep doing what you've always been doing. That there, you, you can't hear the gospel and then go back to the way business as usual, the way it was before. I'll tell you what else the text is doing here. It's telling us what the gospel is not. Go to verse 38. In verse 38, what, is, what does Peter say? Does he say, repent and try harder and be good and then you're in? No. Does it say, repent and then, you know, if you're good enough, then you get to heaven? No. See, I would actually say every other religion in the world has a list of things that you have to do that if you do these things, then you're in. Right? Then you get nirvana. Then you get good karma. Then you get heaven. But Christianity doesn't do that. Christianity doesn't say, repent, and then maybe God will love you and then save you. You don't see that here. Instead, what does it say? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? Will you get forgiveness of sins maybe at the end? Maybe? No. It says forgiveness of sins now. Right? That's completely and utterly different. That you get this now. That's saved by grace. That's saved by what Jesus says. By what he has done. Not by what you've done. That's saved by not what you offer, what you bring, but what he's brought. And what he brings. And so let's look at the next verse in verse 39. It says, this promise is shown by baptism for you and your children. Up in New York, everybody wonders, like, why do Presbyterians baptize babies? And the answer is right here in this text. Because when this is part of you, when you, you have been changed, then if you're a Christian, this book, baptism is the marker that you are part of this new community. And you're going to raise your kid in this community, so you're going to bring them in, and you're going to baptize them as a sign of this promise. But then what the next question people get is, okay, well, if it's not by what you do, then how you, will you and I ever know if we really are Christians? How will we know? How will we know if we really get this? And the answer, I think the text is telling us here, is that if you have a changed heart, if you're actively repenting and believing in Jesus, I think the answer in the text is actually verses 42 through 47. That's what the new community looks like. And so what happens is in verse 37 and 41... Peter's telling us what a changed heart looks like, but then it says this is the product of a changed heart, verses 42 through 47. So if you get the gospel, there are, I've identified, I think, at least five things after verse 42. Let me try to list them for you. If you get the gospel, here's the plan of how to live. Number one, in verse 42, it says you will devote yourself to the, um, the apostles' teaching, right? To biblical teaching and instruction. Number two, you, you devote yourself to uh, deep community and relationship and fellowship. Number three, you have all filled worship through prayer and breaking of bread. Number four, there's the caring of the needy, those who have, you have concern for others. And then number five, there's evangelism and mission. And so a heart change of the gospel seems like what, what um, Acts is telling us is then we will desire the Bible, we will desire community, we would desire worship, we would desire to care for the needy and the helpless. And then, we'll, then and the last thing, we will go on mission in evangelism. But that's the plan, right? That's, that's our first point. The plan is right here. But before we can look at exactly what that might look like in our life, I need to show you 
how the gospel brings this plan about. That you and I can't just procure this out of thin air. That it has to be um, made through the gospel. So, number two, let's look at the parts of the plan. Right? And let's walk, I'm going to do this in reverse order. So first, let's look at evangelism and mission. So go to the very last line of our text, verse 47. It says, they're praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their, to their number day by day those who are being saved. You don't, those numbers don't just start multiplying on their own. That's people going out on mission. That if their lives are changed, right, that they actually go out and bring in new people. So this is saying if you believe the gospel, naturally you go on mission. So the question you have to ask yourself, I ask myself, is then why don't we share our faith as much today, 2019? Right? Why don't we share our faith as much? And I've tried to think about it. I think I've broken us down into those four types of people. So let's play a game today. Let's ask, I want you to ask yourself which of these four types of people you are. Number one, maybe the reason why you don't share your faith more is because when you do, you're kind of a jerk. You know what I'm saying? I mean, hear me out. There's a type of person who's abrasive and argumentative and uncomfortable. And anytime you try to open your mouth and talk, they're like, I don't like talking to you. And so that you've stopped doing it because when you do, people don't like to talk to you too much. Maybe you're an abrasive person. Number two, maybe you're scared. Maybe the reason why you don't open your mouth is because you worry what they might think of you. Maybe they won't like you. Maybe they won't ask you, ask you back to be part of who, you know, their community. Maybe you will offend them, and so you're afraid, and you don't speak up. Number two, maybe that's you. Number three, maybe you're not um, abrasive, and maybe you're not afraid. Maybe number three, you're just a pessimistic person. There's people out there that they look at life, and all they see, right, they're the half-full people. The, the, the glass is half-full. They look at life, and everything's great. And then there's, there's the person out there, they look at the same thing, and they're like, ah, everything, pessimistic. Um, the, the glass is half empty. And so what, what this person does is they look at people and they say, that person, there's no way they'll ever become a Christian. There's some people you look in your life and you say, you know what, that person's so far away that I'm not even going to try. That's pessimism. That's saying, I, you know, that person, it, the chances of them believing are too low. I'm not even going to deal with it. Number four, last one. Maybe you're just indifferent. Maybe you're just so consumed with your concerns and your cares. We, talked, we prayed about this, about your circumstances, that you don't feel like you have the ability to go out. Right? So you don't think about mission because you're like, I'm just trying to think about myself. I'm just trying to get through tomorrow. I've got I to provide for my kids. I've got to provide for my family. And I can't, I can't be bothered with this. And so you're indifferent. But here's the thing. The gospel, the good news, what Peter is talking about here in verses 37 and following if this is in you, let me show you how that changes the, that list. If you're an abrasive person, you know what the gospel does? It comes into your life and it pulls you down. It humbles you because it says to you, God of the universe and the person of Jesus had to die for you. And you know what? If you own that, you know what you're going to do? You're going to talk a little bit quieter. You're going to be a little bit softer. You're going to be a little bit more unsure of yourself. And so when you approach people, that abrasiveness, maybe, you know, it... Maybe you're still an abrasive person, but it, it would lessen over time through the gospel. Because that's what, it, it's what it does. Let's say you're a scared person. You know what the gospel does? It doesn't pull you down, it pulls you up. Right? Because you don't have fear anymore. Why? Because the God of the universe and the person of Jesus was willing to die for you. And if that's true, it pulls you out of your fear. Right? The world might leave you, and people might leave you, but the God of the universe and the person of Jesus, he'll never leave you. And if that's true, 
then that's going to give us boldness to speak. That it'll bring us out of our fear. Number three, if you're a pessimistic person and you say, you know, the chances of that person over there becoming a Christian, forget it. You have to take the gospel. If it moves into your life, you know what it gives you? It shows you that you're no picture of perfection. And as you think about your own faith, it will remind you that your faith is there only because of a miracle. And if you were only a Christian because of a miracle, then how dare you remove that possibility of a miracle in their life as well? Right? It will move you out of your pessimism into ultimate optimism. Because if you could be saved, then so could they. There's nobody too far away. And then lastly, if, um, if you just are indifferent, what the gospel does is it brings introspection. It brings introspection because you, it, it should start making you wonder, do you really understand what this is? That what, you, It is possible, and this is not to, to frighten you, it is possible to intellectually understand Christianity. It is, it is possible for you to intellectually think that you believe it, but it hasn't moved into an experience of your life out into the world. Because if Jesus cared for you, you care for people. Right? If, if he loved you, that love spills out of you into other people. Period. And so if you're an indifferent person, I think it, should, it would bring introspection. The gospel does that. So what does the gospel actually do? On the one hand, you can be yourself. Right? You aren't afraid to be transparent and authentic. And, and so you're, you're ultimately very realistic about you. And at the same time, you're, you're optimistic about others. You can talk to people and tell them the truth. You can give them exactly what they need. And you can be honest about yourself and about them. Moving out into mission. Right? That's evangelism and mission, number one. Number two, how about service? Right? You see these folks serving each other. This is verse 45. In verse 45 it says, They sold their possessions and belongings and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. So we have to ask ourselves, why don't we serve each other? Right? This isn't communism. This isn't socialism. They, this is not somebody with $50,000 and somebody with twenty, and now they both have thirty-five. They still had different amounts of money, but their relationship to their money changed. The relationship to their possessions changed. And you know what I'm talking about, right? There's people, and maybe this is us, that use money, our, our stuff, our possessions, to give ourselves our identity. Where we say, my worth is my wealth. My value is based on my status, keeping up with the Joneses. Right? And I think that's a very American kind of thing. It's all about where we stand on our, you know, our, you know, on our wealth status. But if you have the gospel, if Christ is your identity, and you're saved by grace through faith, then money becomes money, just a way to bless other people. A way to serve other people. So go back to the question. Why were these people able to be so generous? Why were they able to be so generous despite you know, the needs of, other, of themselves? It's because if you didn't lift yourself up, if you didn't save yourself, if it was out of pure charity that you were saved, well, then you can extend that same charity to other people. That if he was generous to you, you can be generous to others. That's what we see here. That's what we have to see here. And so that changes service. That's how the gospel is being changed. Sorry, that's how the gospel changes service in you. Number three, worship. This is verses 42 and 46. You see twice there's this breaking of bread, which commentaries will say is a, it's a, it's a shadow, foreshadowing of or an early form of communion. And so this is, a, this is worship. That they're doing it one time in the courts, uh, in the temple courts publicly, but then they're also doing it privately in their homes. So that makes me ask the question, why is it that sometimes our worship 
why does it feel sometimes like we're going through the motions? That you can come to church here on a Sunday, and you just, why do you come to church on a Sunday? Because you're just used to coming to church on a Sunday, and you just go through the motion. But worship isn't worship. How do we make sure it actually is? And I think the answer this text tells us is that it's how we approach God. Because there's only, I, mean, I don't know if you know this, guys, but there's only two ways to approach God. You either approach God to get things, or you approach God to get God. There's, only, there's, not, there's no in-between between those two things. It's either approach God to get things, or you approach God to get God. And I'll give you an example through prayer. Right? God wants us to pray for things. That's, that is okay. We, that is fine. But is that the first thing or the last thing you do? Because if it's the first thing, I'd say you're using God like a genie in a bottle. Right? You're kind of rubbing it the right way. That was a song sometime. Um, that's supposed to be funny. Um, if you, you, know, you, you rub the genie, you say, God, dear God, just give me this. I need this help. Why? Because you're thinking of a particular part of your life that you think that you need something for. And God does want you to ask that. But he wants you to want him first, not the thing. So do you go to God for God? Or do you go to God for things? Because if you go to God for God, then you come to him and you say, you know what, I'm just going to talk to you because it's you. For the pure joy, for the pure, lo- for the pure love of who he is and what he's done. I think that's why our worship is, bla- is blasé. It's, it's because we haven't understood how to approach God for the sheer beauty of who he is and what he's done. And if you did that, it's not I, I, I have to, it's I want to. It's not because if I don't, then he won't love me. He already loved me. So now I want to. Completely different. How about community? Number four. Look how they had everything in common. Right? And there's a, there's a passage here where it says, they met with each other every day. By the way, when I read that, all the introverts... They start rocking. They start holding their hands. They start going, every day? Ah, they met every day. I don't think I can do that. But you know there's, this was, there was introverts in this place. So what's the problem? See, I, my, I'm an, actually an introvert. My, my wife's not. And the reason why introverts don't want to be with other people is because it's other people. No. Um, it's, there's a lot of reasons for that. Because we get drained by other people. Why do we get drained by other people? It's because of the, it's the day in and day out, the chit-chat. You talk about very thin issues. We already said this. The problem with us is our relationships are too thin. What if our relationships were so deep that we would come together and share our concerns and our cares and our dreams? Then the people around us, that's not somebody I'm trying to get away from. It's somebody I need to have in my life. That I have to have in my life. And you know what I'm talking about when there's those people that you, you don't say go away, you say come closer. And that's what you have here. This is, this is community not a, as a means to your own happiness, but as an end in and of itself. All right, last one. Number five. This is in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Which makes me ask, okay, am I as devoted to the apostles' teaching as they were? And that key word is devoted. When you approach scripture, do you use that word about yourself? that you come to it with devotion. I would actually challenge us and say probably don't. But these people did because they knew that they're going to find in Scripture the nature and work and character and person of God. And so I I think it's important to note this. Um, A lot of historians will point this out, that uh, people groups that are illiterate, if they don't know how to read, when they become Christians, and there's been whole people groups all across history that have become Christians, when they become Christians, you know what the first thing that happens? Is there's this immense desire to learn how to read and write. And the reason why is because they want to know the character of the one 
who changed him. It wasn't just for intellectual knowledge. Now I know, you know, that the, the amount of kings and the amount of judges in the Bible, it's not, that's not the point. The point is who he is and what he has done. And so those are the parts, right? The plan is that we would live and act like this. And I just went through the parts of the plan about how the gospel changes you in these things. But if you're like me at this moment, you should be going, wait a second, if I'm keeping score, those things aren't to the degree that I want them to be in my life. And so let me give you the last part of our talk today, our sermon, which is this. Where's the power behind the plan? How are we going to get this into my life? And I think the answer, I skipped over it, is back at the beginning. Right? Because Peter said... That, you know, let us all, let the, all, the house of Israel therefore know from, for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So he tells them the bad news in verse 36. And then what happens? The good news comes out because in verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And that's the secret sauce. Are we cut to the heart? See, how does that happen? They knew that Jesus was crucified. They knew, but they didn't know. They knew he was crucified generally, but somehow, through that sermon, they realized he wasn't crucified just generally in in history sometime for a bunch of people. He was crucified for me. They owned it individually. They said, wait a second. That your heart gets changed when you realize that he is Lord and Messiah, King, to deliver you from your own issues and your own problems and your own malaise, your own reasons for not actually wanting to care or love and serve other people. And you see, he loved you anyway on the cross for us. And that's why they could be a community, the community that you need and the community that you want. And I, I, I have to apologize here. I have to tell you, your lives won't get better the better programming that this church does. No offense, Elbert, but um, just because this... We could, we could have better programming. We could have better, snazzier events. That's not going to create better community. What, the only thing that will work will be the convicting beauty of Jesus as he cuts us in the heart. And by the way, think about cutting. If I came to you and just kind of cut your arm, that's a bad, don't, you run away. That's bad cutting. But there's kinds of, there, there, are cut, there are cuts to hurt and there are cuts to heal. What's a cut to heal? Right? You've got cancer. Where are you going to go? The surgeon, because you want him to cut you to heal you, not to cut you to hurt you. Jesus Christ is the ultimate surgeon of our lives. That he cuts you not to hurt, but to heal. And you need that in your life. And probably the best way I can explain this to you is through a a quick story. I think C.S. Lewis puts it better than I can. Where um, he tells a story in the the third book of uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, um, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, where there's a boy named Eustace. And this kid is a jerk. He doesn't even know it. He's self-serving. He's self-centered. And he's selfish. And uh, he doesn't even know it. And one day he finds himself on an island and he goes into a cave and he finds a treasure. And all of a sudden his eyes light up. He goes, finally I'm going to have happiness. Finally I'm going to be able to get what I want. I've made it. And he falls asleep self-satisfied on this treasure, not realizing that this was a dragon treasure that a dragon had stolen it from others, and now he was stealing it from the dragon, which made him like a dragon. And so he becomes a dragon, and the truth of his ugliness that was always inside now becomes present, becomes um, uh, visible to himself and to others. And he's going to be stuck as a dragon forever alone. And what happens later on is one night he wakes up and he meets a lion named Aslan. 
Aslan is uh, the Jesus figure for um, C.S. Lewis. And he brings him, brings Eustace to a pool. And then Eustace goes, oh, this is going to ease my pain. Right? This is going to help me in this little area of my life over here. And he's told to get undressed first. So Eustace thinks he has to take off the, the, the dragon skin. So he takes the scales, he, try, he starts scraping himself, and, and he's able to pull off a, a thin layer. He steps out of it, and he looks back, as it's over there, and he realizes he's actually still a dragon. And so he tries to do it again. He, pull, he pulls off the, first, the second layer. He tries to change himself. All of us, by the way, we do this. We try to turn the other, we try to change our, um, ourselves. We turn the leaf, and we're still the same person. We, we try to step out of that skin, and it's the same person. We're still a dragon underneath. And so Aslan says, no, you can't do it yourself. You let me do it. Let me read it to you. He says, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling that skin off, it hurt worse than anything I had ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was the sheer pleasure of feeling that stuff peel off. And when he peeled that beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I had done myself at the three other times, only they hadn't hurt, there it was, lying on the grass, only so much thicker and darker and knobbly looking than the others had been. Then he caught hold of me, and I didn't like that very much because I was very tender underneath. And I had no skin on, and he threw me now into the water. And it hurt like anything, but only for a moment. And that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found all the pain had gone. I turned back into a boy. Here's what you need to hear about this. You and I were dragons, and you don't even know it. We're dragons inside. Some of us are dragons on the outside. And we can't take off our own skins. We can't change on our own. And you need a surgeon who can cut you, not cut to hurt you, but cut to heal you, who can go deeper than you can go into your own heart. And that's what we have here, is that we have the treasures that we're going towards that we think will actually save us and help us, that we're sleeping on top of, and it's making us more and more lonely. But what we have is when the claws go in, and it's going to hurt, friends, it'll strip you down from the things that you're, that you're chasing after, the things that you think are going to help you make it in life, and it'll hurt, but then you'll get this different skin, and this new heart can bring new life. And you know what the response is to the people who have this from this text? Look at verse 46. It's kind of hidden. It says that, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. That word glad gets, we, we, we go right by it. That's not giddiness, that's not glee, that's glad. That's, that, there's a celebration in this process. That if you had this in your life, you know what the natural response is? A party. It should be a celebration, it should be happiness. And by, by the way, your worship up here, it's a party. But again, you can go through the motions and miss it. Because what you're supposed to have here is the community, the context of this community, is celebration. Because the only thing left for us to do is to have gratitude and thanksgiving for what he's done and what he's doing and what he will do. And so, I, if, again, if you're like me, I'm like, yeah, that's great. Thanks, Mike. But how can I have this in my life? If we've never had the perfect... If, how can I get the love of the Father if I've never had the perfect love of my own Father? Everybody in this room, our mothers and fathers... Are broken and we come from broken families so how are we going to be able to actually delight in his perfect love let me give you one last illustration henry light was a pastor and hymn writer in the early 1800s uh, his parents divorced when he was young 
They were remarried, his, his dad remarried, and immediately sent him away. He had a terrible relationship with his dad. It was so bad that when he became a dad himself, he wouldn't let his own sons call him dad. So when he would sign letters, he would not sign them your dad, he would sign them your uncle. That's how bad of a relationship he had with um, uh, his father. And yet he authored many hymns that talk about the comforting image of a father. Now where the heck did he get that idea? How could he have that sense of fatherly love when he didn't have it himself? And how will you and I ever be fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters if we don't have it? And I think the answer is simple. He got it from the true father. And he got it from the true father because he had the true brother in the person of Jesus who brought us all back into family. So Light was able to write um, probably my favorite hymn. I want to read it to you because it's that good. He says, Go then, earthly fame and treasure. Come disaster, scorn and pain. In thy service, pain is pleasure. Will thy favor, loss is gain. You say, well, how's, that po- how's loss gain? Because I have called thee Abba, Father. I have stayed my heart on, heart on thee. Storms may howl and clouds may gather. All must work for good to me. Think what spirit dwells within thee. Think what father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win thee. Child of heaven, canst thou repine? Can you, can you back out? You are a child of heaven with a true heavenly father. So come see him because we can be family together. And as we give ourselves to him because he's given himself to us, as we rejoice in him because he's rejoiced in us, we can go on mission together, folks. We can go out these, front, these doors Loving and serving and caring for folks here and elsewhere because a heart of celebration wells up in us through gratitude and grace. Do you want that? Do we want that? Can I hear an amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray we'll get this beauty and delight into our hearts. There is a celebration that often we don't see because of the concerns and the cares and the dragon skins that we've placed on ourselves to keep us away from being hurt. But if we let you cut us to the heart, if we let us actually see that you had to die, but you were willing to die for us, and we own that for ourselves personally, it will warm our hearts, it will make us less abrasive and less scared, less indifferent and less pessimistic. I pray that this church will do that. I pray that we will really have the joy that we see emulated for us on a Sunday morning. Let it get into the bowels of our souls to clear out the darkness and the hurt and the pain and the shame and, and whatever else is in there so that we can love and serve folks. We pray these things in your name. Amen.